This last section of the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verses 4 to 31, is like an epilogue to the book. And an epilogue describes how it all turned out in the end. And the events described in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 12 that precede this take place over a very short period of time, a matter of months, seven to be exact. And the events described in this epilogue at the end of the book are some 12 years later. Nehemiah is no longer in Jerusalem. He is back in Susa at the court of King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, in his role, that's Nehemiah, as cupbearer to the king. Just look with me at verse 6 of chapter 13, page 409. While this was taking place, that is the events uh, described, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. The 32nd year of King Artaxerxes is 12 years after the events in the book of Nehemiah began. Um, just to say that uh, Artaxerxes is referred to as the king of Babylon simply to signify that Persia conquered uh, Babylon. Now, that's the first uh, thing I want to uh, note. Twelve years later, an epilogue, how it all turned out in the end. And the second comment, before we read, relates to the phrase at the beginning of verse 4. If you just look at that, uh, the phrase reads, now before this, Eliashib the priest, and so on. What does the phrase now before this mean? It can't mean that the events described in 13.4 to 31 took place at an earlier time, because as we've seen from verse 6, they didn't. They're 12 years later. So what does it mean? And you need to take my word for this. It happens 32 times in Ezra and Nehemiah. It doesn't mean before this in a temporal sense. It means before this in a spatial sense. What does that mean? It means in the face of this. So with all this good stuff going on, in light of it, in face of it, before this, this is what happened. So let's read the epilogue. How did this great period of spiritual reformation in the history of the people of God, and that's what Nehemiah 1 to 12 is, one of the greatest periods of reformation in the history of the people of God. How did it turn out just 12 years later? Chapter 13, reading from verse 4. Now, before this, in the face of this, in light of this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of her God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for then the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time I asked leave of the king, and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God, with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. 
so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zachur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them and donkeys and also wine grapes, figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that the load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take your daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliasib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each to his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the firstfruits. Remember me, O my God for good. Amen. And may God speak to us all from His living and His holy Word. Let's just spend a moment in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, after so much encouraging stuff in the book of Nehemiah, 
so much of vision and strategy and the authority, the centrality, the power of the Word, the call to corporate prayer, recommitment, worship, working for the kingdom, putting back what had been put aside, recovering what had been lost. After all this inspiring and encouraging stuff, what a sad epilogue. There is much for us to learn. So will you teach us? And will you enable us to listen? and respond in obedience for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, one of the most encouraging things about reading a passage like that is that it gives you confidence that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. You would not end a book with this kind of epilogue. If this was uh, screened in a cinema, nobody would go because the epilogue is so discouraging and so disappointing. What a sad ending to such a significant period in the history of God's people. For they were indeed heady days in Israel, great days, under Nehemiah's leadership. But it's all gone wrong. It has all fallen apart, not in a generation or two, but in 12 years. Now, today I want to do two things. I want us to summarize the message of the book and to retrace our steps through it so that when we set it down, we understand its message, and then to take this chapter as the application off the back of the book as a whole. So let me begin by uh, walking us through the message of the book. Now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, turn back with me to chapter 1 of uh, Nehemiah. They describe the period of spiritual reformation and renewal after the exile in Babylon. Now, the exile was probably, certainly, the most catastrophic time in the history of God's people. God's people had disobeyed God's Word over many generations, and God had judged them. He had punished them. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The city was destroyed, the walls broken down, and the people of God taken into exile in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar, far from home, which was Jerusalem and the Promised Land, was at the end for God's people. And it's important that as we look back, we put ourselves in their time frame, and they really would have thought that it was the end. The walls broken down, the temple destroyed in flames, and they were marched out of the promised land into Babylon for two generations. It looked like and felt like the end, but God meant it for good to refine His people, bringing them back to godly obedience. Now, that's how you describe the exile— Seventy years, two generations, they thought it looked like, it felt like the end, but God meant it for good to refine them. Now, you can just say that. But if you lived through that 70 years of decline and refining, it's tough. But God in His mercy had brought His people back to Jerusalem and the Promised Land, and the spiritual reformation and renewal had begun. Ezra describes the rebuilding of the temple, 
And of course, that had such significance. The temple was where God dwelt with his people. God in his temple, in the heart of Jerusalem, in the heart of the promised land. Then comes Nehemiah. Chapter 1, Nehemiah is in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, conquerors of Babylon. And he hears from his brother in Jerusalem that all is not well. And so he sets about in his heart to put it right. There's lots of building work, physical and spiritual, that needs done. Chapter 2, he goes back to Jerusalem and he surveys the walls. He rides round the walls in the dead of night on his horse and they're all smashed up. Chapter 3, he gathers, he galvanizes everybody to work together shoulder to shoulder in the building work. That wonderful phrase in chapter 3, all of God's people, all of God's people standing shoulder to shoulder beside each other, engaged in the work according to their gifts. And in our own little tiny physical building project that is this building, or the buying project rather than the building project, that uh, chapter became really instrumental for us that we might stand shoulder to shoulder in the work. And we did. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, three chapters on opposition and setbacks. Flack. Now, I've been told this week by those training for ministry here that I use six phrases regularly. Flack is one. But flack is just spot on here. Chapter 4, flack against all of God's people from the world. Chapter 5, flack from the inside. Chapter 6, flack from the outside against the leader, Nehemiah. But the work goes on and the work prevails. Just note, if you remember, chapters 4, 5, and 6, three individuals who were most opposed to God's people. You might remember their names. Tobiah, the Ammonite. Sanballat, the Horonite. You want to keep them as far away from the church as you can. But chapter 6, the wall is finished in remarkable quick time, 52 days um, Bible commentaries go into a long explanations here how it would be possible that the walls could be finished in 52 days. And at the end of their long explanations, they conclude that, yes, in the ancient world with the right diggers and whatever you had, they could be finished in 52 days. But it was remarkable. They were finished in 52 days because God was in it. That's the point. Chapter 7 lists all the people of God with all their different gifts, each playing their part. God appoints leaders. Nehemiah was one, others to lead with him, chapter 7. And then follows this glorious section, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And what is described in 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 happens over a really short period of time. We saw these uh, pictures of kids going to camp. Uh, KX2, Altnacrish, contagious. They last about a week. What's described in 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 lasts about a week. It's like a, a great big Bible conference. A wonderful time of blessing. A wonderful time of reformation, renewal, and progress. And the great principles we learn from it. Chapter 8, the people of God, all of them, underneath the authority 
of the Word of God as it is proclaimed. All their ears listening attentively, their hearts, their minds engaged. Chapter 9, the people of God, convicted by the Spirit of God, under the Word of God, give themselves corporately to pray, confessing their sin. But they do not in confession focus on their sin as much as on the glory and the mercy and the sovereignty of God. Chapter 10, the people renew their covenant to their God. Each person makes a serious, personal, public commitment to God. Chapters 11 and 12, the city is repopulated. Men and women, grannies, granddads, boys and girls on the streets of Jerusalem, back in Zion, the city of God. God is in his temple. The temple is built. The walls are up. The people are back singing praises to God. These two choirs marching left and right round the walls in chapter 12 meet at the temple and all of God's people sing songs to the Lord in Zion, pointing to the new creation at the end of time. And the spiritual principle in all of this is that, again, after two generations in Babylon, God's people are back in God's place, Jerusalem, under God's rule, the law of God, as a light to the nations. And God's mission, once again, moves uh, forward. But the question at the end of chapter 12 is, will it last? Just over 10 years later, what is the spiritual state of God's people? Chapter 13, verses 4 to 14, we might describe as the corruption of worship, the temple and all it stands for neglected. And what is described here is blatant corruption. So read with me from verse 4 of 13. Before this, Eliash of the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, the high priest, like the most senior clergyman in the land, who was related to Tobiah, Tobiah, the same Tobiah, the same Tobiah who was vehemently opposed to God's people, deriding him. Eliasib, the most senior clergyman in the land, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber he refurbished a large room in the temple which should have had the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, the wine and the oil, which were given uh, to the uh, Levite singers and gatekeepers, and it became his home. Now, I mean, it's shocking that the high priest got the architects and builders in and refurbished it for his relative Tobiah, the Ammonite, who had done everything within his power to ridicule and oppose God's people. It's the worst form of nepotism. Tobiah was certainly not a believer, and you've got to question the spiritual standing of the high priest who did this. Just 10 years on, corrupt leadership. And the point is here that when those who oppose the people of God, oppose the true living people of God, that is, those who are obedient to his word, when these people have the positions of power and influence at the center, then the rot has really set in. They might look very religious, but they are evil. Another aspect of the corrupt worship was 10 to 14, verses 10 to 14, the people no longer give 
to the work of the Lord, the, the running out of money. Now, you see what's going on, and I think that's Nehemiah's intention. This is the point. The stuff that had been put right has gone wrong again. Nehemiah was a godly leader, and he had appointed godly leaders in his stead. But look at the leadership. It's now corrupt ten years on. Under the word of God, the people of God had responded by giving sacrificially to the work of God, including providing money so the priests could work in the temple. But they're not giving now. What has been put right has gone wrong. Again. Now, just on the money side of things, let me just draw an application, I guess, to our own circumstances. We've gone through a a really encouraging patch. We've given whatever it is, one and a half million to buy a building. And we needed to get the Atkinsons back to China. And some of you will know, many of you will not, that we've received a gift of 100,000 pounds that they might go back. It's great. But I wonder if in 10 years from now, when our sense of dependence on the Lord for His care of us will have gone? Or will we be as generous and as thankful? I wonder if 10 years from now, the leaders of this church, and you're looking at one of them, will be as keen on the gospel and the word of God and in prayer as they are now. We must not presume that we will be. Nehemiah never would have thought that Eliasib, the high priest, would have taken a room in the temple and refurbished it for one of the people who had most vehemently opposed God's people. But it happened. More bad news, verses 15 to 22, the desecration, the profaning of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given by God to his people as a day of rest, a day of worship, but it had become a day like any other day. In fact, a day to be exploited for material gain. And you can hear the shock in the way that Nehemiah writes, verse 15 and 16. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And I saw people uh, bringing in fish and all kinds of good and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. And then almost in italics, in the shock in Nehemiah's heart, in Jerusalem itself. Nehemiah was shocked. Here's a passing observation. How shocked are we when we see what happens in the church like this? How shocked are we? And Nehemiah expresses his shock to the nobles of Judah, verse 15. What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all the disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. See what he's saying? This is the same stuff that led to God putting you into exile. This is is the stuff that we just put right. And now we're going back. Don't you realize that God's wrath and judgment will come? 
Now, there'll be all sorts of celebrations and reflections. And I'm just watching some people who've just arrived. (laughs) There'll be all sorts of celebrations and reflections on the Reformation and its 500 years this year. You see, the camp, uh, Contagious, is going to study the Reformation. And what they will study is what was put right then to bring the church back to Nehemiah chapter 8, the Bible, Nehemiah chapter 9, prayer, Nehemiah chapter 10, covenant renewal. And the astute spiritual observers will see that that same stuff needs to be put right now. But many will study the Reformation and not ever think that the state of the church today uh, is as in such need as it was then. And that's what Nehemiah is saying. He's expressing his shock. He says, don't, don't you see that this is exactly the stuff that led to us going into exile and you're doing it again? In these verses 14 to 22, money rears its ugly head again. It always does. Like the world around them, they're corrupted by worth, by material gain, by the values of the world. God's people are called to be distinctive, to be different. Um, and there's one other act of disobedience Nehemiah highlights here. It's in verses 22 to 30, uh, disobedience in the sexual realm, God's people marrying unbelievers. Verses 23 and 24, in those days when I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. They are sobering verses. The consequences are seen in the next generation. The children no longer speak the language of God. A single generation's compromise can have such significant consequences. It's a a striking application, I think, in any generation, is what will we do for the generation that succeeds us? Now, that comes right down to our homes, those of us who have children. Are our children familiar with the language of God? in our homes. It's a very sobering verse. In one generation, the children could no longer speak the language of God. Now, I'm well aware of the pastoral complexities of these issues in verses 28 27, believers marrying unbelievers. But nonetheless, God's Word says what it says. The corruption of worship, the desecration of the temple, weak leadership, not giving to the work of God, the desecration and profaning of the Sabbath, the corruption of wealth, the loss of distinctiveness, the loss of a distinctive morality. And you see, then and now, the issues often come home to roost in these same Uh, realms, the corruption of worship, money, morality, a loss of distinctiveness. 
And it all comes down to a simple disobedience of the Word of God. Andy Robertson is preaching on a really tough passage tonight at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Do pray for him as he preaches on that. It's the passage when the Lord Jesus confronts people at eternity and they say, we knew you, and Jesus says, you don't, you never did. And the distinction is not between Christians and non-Christians. The distinction is between real believers and look-like believers. How do you know? How do you know if you are a genuine believer sitting in church this morning? And let's not wait till tonight because you might not be here to hear this. How do you know if you are a genuine believer? How do you know if your church is real? And we need to have the confidence and convictions in our day to say there are real churches and there are dying dead churches. Let's not imbibe the PC of our world in every way. How do you know if you're real as a Christian? Because you are trying and failing, no doubt, like me, but failing but trying to live by the Word of God. That's the acid test. And here in Jerusalem, the corruption of worship, the desecration of the temple, the weakness of leadership, not giving, the desecration, profaning of the Sabbath, the corruption of wealth, the loss of distinctiveness. Now, there are different issues for us, but money, morality, leadership, clarity, all boils down to, will we? have at the center of our church and the center of our homes the supremacy and the authority of the Word of God. But in Nehemiah, we have a courageous leader. You could well understand that Nehemiah back in Susa, a long way from Jerusalem, ten years older, might well have despaired and had no heart to sort this out. I mean, you could well understand that. You could well understand that. I mean, it's just 12 years later, he hears that God's people are in great distress, just like they were in chapter 1. And what does he do? He asks again for permission from the king to go back. And when he goes back, we see the courage to confront. Verse 8, I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. You know, what does Nehemiah do? He doesn't enter into a period of reflective dialogue. He clears it out. Clears out Tobiah. And there is a time for that. There's a time not to sit round the table and have endless dialogue, endless dialogue. There's a time for the church to act decisively. Verses 11 to 13. I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And he went on to reappoint new officials. 
verses 17 to 22, in response to the profaning of the Sabbath, that I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, why is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? And uh, he stopped all this stuff going on on the Sabbath, verses 25 to 29, in response to the loss of moral distinctiveness, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Remember chapter 8? All the people gathered together, took an oath upon their heads that they would not turn away from the Word of God. And all that Nehemiah is doing here is reminding them of that It is the most, most loving thing you can do pastorally to say to someone who is, I guess, entering into a relationship that is contrary to the Word of God. The most loving thing you can do for them is to say no. It is. And you can only do it in the context of a church, a community of faith, because they know you love them when you say it. Courage to confront and sort out how rare that is. What drove Nehemiah? What gave him the zeal to sort this out was not because he was an abrasive, confrontational personality. He just wasn't. It was because he cared very, very deeply for the cause of God. The stakes were high. They couldn't be higher. This was the temple, the dwelling place of God. This was the city of Jerusalem, the light to the nations. This was the people of God called to be distinctive. What was at stake? No less than the mission of God to the world. I'm reminded of the ordination promises ministers make. I made. Are not zeal for the glory of God and the salvation of all people, your chief inducements to enter the holy ministry. They are, and if they really are, then zeal for the glory of God will necessitate at times confrontation. A courageous leader, but a humble, broken man, conscious of his sin, who seems, and this is a kind of resolution as we come to the end of Nehemiah, a humble, broken man, who seems to have lost any hope for the future. That's the sentiment, I think, of his praying that punctuates this chapter. Look with me. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds, my loyal covenant acts that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is not self-righteousness. They are the prayers of a broken-hearted man who really sees no hope. All he can see is a tiny remnant, just like Daniel at the end of the exile. Daniel prays, My Lord, what shall be the outcome? Nehemiah prays, Remember me, O my God, for good. You might remember the prayer in Nehemiah 9, that wonderful prayer of restoration. It ends like chapter 13 on a whimper. Here's the end of that prayer in chapter 9. Behold our God, we are in great distress. So the epilogue to the book of Nehemiah is not the triumph of Reformation. It is the failure of Reformation. 
And there followed 400 years of bleak times, hard times, for the people of God, for the mission of God in the world. Bleak times, hard times, 10 generations, 10 generations. The voice of God, silent. And then God stepped onto the earth in the person of his son, Jesus. Just in case you might be tempted to switch off in these last few minutes and hear or think I'm going to say it's all right because Jesus came and made it right. Well, you're right and you're wrong. God stepped onto the earth and broke his silence in a physical way. Jesus shed his blood to make a new covenant. Forgiveness for sins once and for all, for all who come in repentance and faith, for every nation of the earth. And with Jesus' death and resurrection, the everlasting kingdom of God has been inaugurated and will come in its fullness in the new creation. When Jesus comes again, the eternal future of God's people is guaranteed. Unlike Nehemiah, we have certain hope. We know that because Jesus has come and has risen from the dead and reigns as God's everlasting king and the glorious mission of his gospel is rampant across the earth. If you are discouraged about the spiritual state of Scotland today, go home this afternoon and just Google what is happening in China and look forward to the next 30 years when there will be 100 million Christians. We have reason to hope. And so for us, there is another epilogue to Nehemiah, and that epilogue is the New Testament and the glorious truths it describes. So we have reason to sing. A certain future, a glorious new Jerusalem, a new creation, guaranteed, so never lack assurance and hope, but we're not in that new creation yet. We will be, but we're not. Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the big picture. But the church of Christ needs to be obedient to the rule of Christ through his word. Think of the New Testament, the glorious beginning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The glorious story in Acts as the Spirit comes, and the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. Fifty years later, or ten years later, Paul, Peter, are writing to churches because they have turned away from the Word of God. Think of the letters to the churches in Revelation, all but one, call to repentance. So our epilogue to Nehemiah is certainty, but the realism that the struggle goes on until Jesus comes again. So what are we to do? Here's where we land the plane. Always, always, always keep on working to reform the church. Strategy and vision is necessary. We need vision and strategy like Nehemiah's in the church. The most obvious need is multiplying gospel churches, enabling mission, all the stuff we are engaged in, training future leaders. Let's not bottle the opportunities God sets before us in this city as churches in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Let's not think it's too hard. The goalposts are too high. And we need courage, zeal for the glory of God, to confront sin, disobedience in our lives, in our church's life, more widely in the church, but with courage that is always cost. The church's calling is to be a prophetic voice in the nation, to sing the Lord's song, 
not the world's song. But that is costly. But like Nehemiah, as we close, a realism and a genuine contrition that our efforts are feeble, likely to fail. Every movement of reformation, renewal in the history of the church has failed. Because we are sinful. The risks of reformation are real. Self-assurance, empire building, the risks of doing nothing are real. It's impossible. And so our epilogue to this book is in some major respects different, better, more encouraging, more certain, but in many respects the same. So let me lead us in prayer with contrite hearts. Our Father, like the people of God then, we are in great distress. Remember me, O my God. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Remember me, O my God. And spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Remember me, O my God, for good. Have mercy upon us. And keep us faithful to the Word of God. For Christ's sake. Amen.